0: Hey there, and welcome to the United Church Podcast. We are a new church here in Seattle committed to an ethic of love. We are striving to be a people united, united with Jesus, each other, ourselves, and the world around us. We hope you enjoyed this week's homily. When we gather together on Sunday mornings, it's an opportunity for us to begin to peel back some of the layers and see a little bit more clearly who this God is. Every time we gather together here, we gather together as a community of people, a group of people that are in this process of journeying together to figure out and understand just a little bit more who this God is, that that we can actually not only understand him, but grow in depth of relationship with him. It's It's a process that continues and continues and continues. And that process is molded and formed and shaped by the people that are here in this space. That together we we arrive at this space and at this place to to dive in together, to understand a little bit more together and have each other push us and prod us and pull us and tug us and, and whatever, to understand more about who this God is. This morning, our question comes from our community. It comes and it bubbles up, and it's a very awesome question. Is spiritual growth and social justice mutually exclusive? I love this question. In fact, this is one of the questions that I've been the most excited about, one of the ones that I've been the most excited to kind of dive into together, to kind of begin to understand how these two things function together and if they do at all. When I was a kid, I spent a lot of time with my great-grandmother, Spitzer. That was her last name. Grandma Spitzer is is what we uh, knew her as and how we loved her. And I would go over to her house on a pretty regular basis and have a fried bologna sandwich. Mmm, fried bologna sandwich. I mean, she made these amazing fried bologna sandwiches. And I knew Grandma Spitzer specifically for the fried bologna sandwich, as well as checkers and Connect Four, because that's what we would do together before descending into the basement where my great-grandfather, my great-grandpa Spitzer, had long passed before this time, had this immaculate collection of gems and rocks that he polished and had on display in the the basement. It was like a living museum. And it was awesome. And I thought it was one of the coolest things ever. And I would go down there and Grandma would always let me walk away with something from the collection. Whether it was a rock, whether it was an arrowhead or a tomahawk. Because they also toured the country going to sites excavating things. And they they found uh, uh, First Nation people like arrowheads and, and, uh, and, and tomahawks. I've got a couple of those like hanging out at our apartment kind of thing. But there was nothing cooler than the dinosaur bones. I'm not kidding. They have two gigantic dinosaur bones. I have no idea what they are or where they're from, but they're, they were just in this box, and you could touch these dinosaur bones. It was like, oh my goodness. I remember when my dad decided, uh, that, or when my mom retired, and my parents were on their way to move to Florida, which is one of the two places that retired people go to. Florida and Arizona, (laughs) when they decided to make their trek down to Florida, my dad was cleaning out their basement and had the box of dinosaur bones. And I looked at it, and I was like, what are you doing with this? He was like, it's not going on the truck. And I was like, what do you mean that's not going on the truck? That's going on the truck. He goes, no, I just thought I'd give them away. I was like, you will not? Those are my dinosaur bones now. I'm not taking them with me because I can't get them on the plane to get back to Seattle, but they're not going anywhere except with you down to Florida. And when you guys are dead and gone, they will be mine, okay? And he was like, okay, great, 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 whatever, whatever. So we loaded them on the truck, and I made sure that they made it on the truck. But here's what's so fascinating about Grandma Spitzer. I had no idea who she was as a woman until after she had passed. I knew her for fried bologna sandwiches, gems, and dinosaur bones, and checkers and, you know, Connect Four. That was it. That's all I knew, but I'm so fascinated by how the stories of our own history and our lineage form us and shape us, especially after the fact. My great-grandma was a pretty remarkable woman, things that I knew that she was a missionary of some sorts in the States, but I had no idea exactly what it was. And I, I won't forget, it was probably five or six years ago, I stumbled across this book called Don't Ever Give Up by Robert Hunter. He was a pastor in my hometown of Decatur, Illinois. But he was a missionary sort of pastor there to create an African-American church in a pretty segregated part of the state, a a really difficult part. And the beginning chapters of one of, or the the beginning lines of one of the chapters in this book, chapter 16, I arrived in Decatur at the train station on schedule and was picked up by Mr. and Mrs. Spitzer. While we sat around their dinner table, I learned some of the history, and he, he goes on. And he begins to talk about my great-grandma and some of the things that she was doing. And here's what's remarkable about this story. This was in the 50s when black men and women did not share a dinner table with white men and women. And here they were gathered around. Not only did they pick him up from the train station, but they invited him over and had dinner with him and learned about all of the work that she had been doing to reach uh, African American little boys and girls throughout the neighborhoods and teaching them about who Jesus was. The story continued that not only was she doing these sorts of things, but she was actually fighting and advocating for them as a part of her own church, saying, we need to do something about these kids. Now again, my hometown was a pretty segregated place. Of course, it was in the north, so it's not like the super segregation that took place in the south, but there was still a a, a demarcation, a line of demarcation between black and white within this hometown that I grew up in. In fact, the, the denomination that I grew up in, the General Association of Regular Baptists, yeah, super fundamentalist denomination kind of thing, they did not allow black, church, black churches into the white denomination. They said, no, 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 you got you to create something different, something separate. Grandma fought for this new pastor and for this new church to be welcomed in to the fellowship together as a whole part of the body, that there was no distinction between black and white in the 50s. This is what she fought for, this is what she did. And I was just like, I had no idea that my grandma was such an amazing woman that fought and worked hard and tirelessly to make sure that all people were looked at as equal, especially within the church. In the late 70s and, and early 80s, my Aunt Diane was a missionary to Russia. But she didn't live in Russia. She didn't ever make it into Russia, mainly because Russia was closed at that time to any sort of Christian coming in to do anything whatsoever. My Aunt Diane was a part of a train of like, people that were, were figuring out ways to smuggle the Bible into Russia, like That's what she was doing. She was figuring out ways to get the Bible in there, but then created this really subversive sort of way of, of, of communicating the gospel of Jesus into Russia, where she joined up with other people, and my uncle Peter, who was, a, who, who was a Russian man, they started a radio broadcast from outside of Russia that reached in to Russia, something that the government itself could not shut down because you can't stop radio airwaves. You just can't stop radio waves in any way, shape, or form. It is scientifically impossible to stop it unless you stop it from the source. But my Aunt Diane was doing it from outside of Russia where Russia had no possible way of stopping them. And they communicated the beauties of the gospel subversively into Russia as a way of telling people about Jesus. These two women, my my Grandma Spitzer and my Aunt Diane, kind of taught me From afar and from near and through their stories of past and present of what it looks like to be a creative individual that does subversive work of social justice, of gospel proclamation, and doing them together at the same time. So is spiritual growth and social justice mutually exclusive? No. They're not mutually exclusive. In fact, I would say that they're not even separate in any way, shape, or form, but that they can come together and be something really beautiful that we are called to participate, called to be, and called to do. These two women taught me what subverting power structures can look like and can be like. But before we move any further, I think it's probably a really good idea to kind of define some terms because I think oftentimes we can get really confused and and caught up in the minutiae and have our own ideas of what spiritual growth is and our own ideas of what social justice are. That we can get kind of locked into our own ideas and so I wanted to create a common vocabulary for us of what that would be. And I wanted to start with spiritual growth or spiritual formation. And Robert Mulholland Jr. in his book, Invitation to a Journey, said this about spiritual formation. He said, spiritual formation is the process of being conformed to the image of Christ for the sake of others. That this is what spiritual growth looks like. That this is what spiritual formation is at the very heart of the matter. It's a process of being conformed to the image of Christ for the sake of others. First thing I want to highlight here is process. We've been talking a lot uh, recently that, that what we are all participating in together as a community is a process. That our, our, our understanding of who Jesus is is a process. And each and every single one of us are at a different point or a different uh, space in this process as we continue on but it's a process. It's a process that each and every one of us are engaging in. Now here's here's the thing about this process. Spiritual formation, we are always being conformed. We are always being conformed by something or someone. We are always being conformed by something or someone. And the question is, who? Are we being conformed to or what are we being formed by? What is it that we are being formed to and what is it are we being formed by? We are always being formed by something or someone. My grandma was always forming me into the image of Jesus. Always forming me into the image of Jesus just by our presence together. However, so was my Aunt Diane, and so was my grandfather, and so was my parents, and so are all of you. Together as a community, we are always being formed by something or someone. Sometimes it's the news and our understanding of what is taking place on the news. Sometimes it's our cell phones and just the amount of time that we spend on that. Something or someone is always forming us. What are you being formed by? What are you being formed into? Now, spiritual formation is specifically that we're being formed into the image of Jesus, into the likeness of Jesus. That's what Mulholland says, that we are being formed into the image of Christ for the sake. And formed into the image of Jesus that this is the heart of spiritual formation that you and me together are being formed in the image of jesus but the best part is the kicker for the sake of others we do not do this we do this for other people there is always an internal and external push an internal and an external pull as we think about spiritual formation that external pull i would argue is the sake of justice but what exactly is justice? Paul Tillich puts it this way. He says, justice is power performing the work of love. Justice is power performing the work of love. He wrote this all the way back in 1960. This isn't a new definition. This isn't something that, that is just somewhere, somehow fallen out of the sky. This is an older sort of definition of what justice is. That it's power Justice is actually power performing the work of love. Or perhaps a little bit more recently, um, with great power comes great responsibility, which is actually originated from the French Revolution, or Luke chapter 12, verse 48, or Spider-Man. Whichever one you want to take, that phrase has been around for a long time. It, it occurs in some documents re- regarding the French Revolution, but Luke 12, 48 is probably, maybe, just more than likely, the best originator of this phrase. With great responsibility comes great, or with great power comes great responsibility. That you and I have a sense of power about us, that we have the ability and the, and the potential to create great change in our culture in our society, in our community, in our neighborhoods, in our homes. That each and every one of us holds some semblance of power to make and create change. And with that, we have a great responsibility to actually engage in that, to do that, to to, to make and do change at a very profound level. Dr. Cornel West, kind of riffing off of Paul Tillich, said it this way, justice is what love Looks like in public. Justice is what love looks like in public. I absolutely love this phrase that justice is what love looks like in public. It is taking Tillich's phrase and kind of condensing it down into a more modern understanding of what justice looks like. If justice is power, it's what love also looks like when we engage with the systems and the structures around us to create something new, to create a sense of equality and to create a reality of of equity within our society and within our culture and within us as a people, that we as Christians, that we as followers of Jesus, what we are tasked with in this thing called spiritual formation and justice is to actually step into and create equity, to create equality all around us because this is the act of love that Jesus came to do and bring. And James chapter 2 kind of puts this on display a little bit more clearly for us. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. This is such a fascinating passage. It's such a fascinating telling of James, who is the brother of Jesus, writing this letter to the church, saying, hey, guys, you've got these questions about faith and works. You have these questions about what it means to be someone who is being formed into the image of Jesus and questions about what it looks like to live that out practically. And you're actually dividing yourself amongst the people who say, no, 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 no. This is just about what we do. Or people are saying, no, 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 no. This is just about my faith. This is just about my growth. This is just about my spiritual formation. And that they are two diametrically opposed sorts of things. Faith and works. And that's what we need. But here's my favorite, my favorite line in the whole passage is right here. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Best part of the whole thing. It's kind of funny if you think about it. Just think about it for one second. Think about it. This is hysterical. Even the demons believe that there is one God. What is separating you from the demons? What is separating you from evil? What is separating you? It's not belief. It's action. You believe that there's one God? Great. So do the demons. <laughs> You're on the same team there. Show me something different. Show me something new. Show me something beautiful and crazy and awesome about what it is that you believe. Don't just believe it. Do something about it. Engage in creating equitable and equality places in this world around us do these beautiful and amazing works all around us just do it I I think it's hysterical sorry you might not find it funny I find it really funny even the demons believe it great good for you like this is James being like super sarcastic and super just like blunt and poignant all at the same time like good for you way to go scripture's funny scripture's funny Sometimes we just have to work to get the joke. <laughs> All right. Anyhow. So we have this sort of, sort of thing that is taking place where we have created this dichotomy between, between what we do, justice, fa- uh, justice and works and this. And we also have this dichotomy of, of, of faith and of belief and of spiritual formation. And we've, we've kind of tried to separate them However, as as our friend Hannah has kind of pointed out uh, to to a few of us, there's this thing called the fruitfulness pendulum, where we kind of go back and forth. and It's not something that is split in half. It's not something that says, oh, here's faith and here's works, and we do neither one. It's something that we actually shift back and forth between, that we shift back and forth between faith and works. We shift back and forth between, how she would put it, is rest and work. Like that there's this space of rest and of belief and allowing God to form us in this space. And also this place of work where we, we get active and we do things and we're also formed there. That spiritual formation actually happens in both of these spaces. And this whole pendulum right here is where we are being formed in the image and the likeness of Christ for the sake of others. It's faith and work. It's Sabbath and it's work. And Here's what's really cool about the fruitfulness pendulum is I think sometimes we, we want to stay on one side or the other. We want to stay in this area of rest, of just being like, you know what, I need to be one of those people that, that, that is just, just praying and, and contemplating for others. And I just need to be in this space and that's all I need to do. All I need to do is pray for the world. I just need to pray for, for others and I'm going to sit in this space of rest and of contemplation and being. And there's another side of it where people say, no, 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 no. That's a terrible idea. Just sitting over there and praying all the time. You're not doing anything. It's horrible. You can sit over there and that's great, but I'm going to get to work. I'm going to do some stuff. I'm going to do some crazy things. And we're going to be doing, 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 doing. And yeah, great, you can pray for us and all that stuff, but what I really need you to do is get off your butt and get over here and help us. Create the change and make the change. There's like this fight that happens between both sides where those that are working are like, you need to quit praying, you need to come and do something. And those that are resting over here are like, no, 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 you need to stop working, you need to come over and pray. And like it's this fight back and forth between two sets of people. But what's actually happening in the space is we need both. We need to be a people of balance, a people that are swinging back and forth between rest and work, a people that are finding spaces to, 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 to pray and to contemplate and to allow God to pour into us so that we can then go out and work. And we need to be a people that are not only just sitting in the space but going for the sake of others. And people that are working need to take a moment to step away and come back and find rest. Rest. Abraham Joshua Heschel, in his book, The Sabbath, talks about the origination of this idea of Sabbath, of of where it came from and what it looks like. And, And in it, he says that actually, what actually took place in the creation story, in the creation account, is we have these six days of God working. But do you know what happened before creation when there was nothingness? In Genesis 1, it talks about how the earth was, was, was void and empty, but that only happened after God spoke, right? What happened before God spoke? What was taking place before God was? Heschel would say it was Sabbath, that God was at rest, that God was preparing for what was to come, that it was just rest. And then God worked for six days Days to create this new world, this new life that we inhabit, and then he rested again. But it wasn't to complete the process, it was to start a new process in which we get to participate in and engage in the creation of the world around us. That Sabbath actually begins with this idea of rest. In fact, in the, in the Jewish tradition, the world, or, or, or the, the way in which a day works, is the day actually begins at night. Heschel talks about this in the books of the Sabbath. The, 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 the day actually begins as we get ready to go to We go to sleep. And in the midst of that sleep, God is working. God is doing. God is preparing. God is creating. And then we wake up and we get to join with him in what he is doing. We get to partner with God in what he is doing. And then the work for the day is complete. And we go back to sleep to start a new day in which God is at work creating and doing and being. This is the idea of Sabbath and of rest, that we fall back and forth on this pendulum between rest and work, that we juxtapose ourselves back and forth, back and forth as we find this pendulum, that our days actually begin with rest as we sit and rest and contemplate who this God is and we sleep. Knowledge that God is at work all around us doing all sorts of amazing things, And then we get to join with him, partner with him, and work in the midst of it. Micah 6, 8, in the Talmud, which is also a Jewish text, says this. Do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief. Do justly now. Love mercy now. Walk humbly now. You are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free to abandon it. All around us is so much pain. All around us is so much grief. All around us is so much heartache. We see the systems at work pushing people down. We see those that are in power that are not wielding power in terms of love but in terms of creating and grifting more power for themselves, that they can be the ultimate dictators of what life on this planet looks like. They don't do it out of love. They do it out of a sense of power. And it's very easy for us to be daunted by the tasks that are in front of us. But what God calls us to do, what God calls us to be, is to find this pendulum work between rest and work. Find ourselves resting in the knowledge that God is at work. Find ourselves resting in the knowledge that God is forming us, that God is continually pushing and pressing in us to be a people of love conformed into the image of Christ for the sake of others. For the sake of others. Do not be daunted. Do not be daunted by this, but... Do justly now. Do justice now. Love mercy now. Take care of those people that are hurting and wounded now. Do justly. Break down the systems. Love mercy. Show compassion and grace to those that are around us that are hurting in the midst. And walk humbly now. Don't wield this power as a sense of power but wield this power in a sense of love like Tillich asked us to do. Banksy put out this picture a little while ago. I think oftentimes we can get exhausted. We can exhaust ourselves in this work. Banksy said, if you get tired, learn to rest, not to quit. If you get tired, learn to rest, not to quit. Oftentimes it's really easy for us in the midst of that pendulum, if all we're doing is on the side of work over and over and over and over and over again, that we're pouring out everything about ourselves over and over and over again, we'll get exhausted. And oftentimes we find people just quitting. They throw up their hands and they say, what good is it? What good is it? It's time to get mine. It's time for me to no longer pour out myself for others, but to just give up. I think that's what happens sometimes in the church, too, is we pour out ourselves over and over and over for the people that are around us. We just give up and we quit out of exhaustion because we can't find ourselves falling back and forth on the pendulum between rest and work. Do not be daunted. By the grief and the despair and the pain and the hurt in the world around us. But do justly now. Love mercy now. And walk humbly now. Let us be that kind of people that find the balance, that find the balance in the pendulum. Let us be those kind of people that do not see spiritual growth and social justice as mutually exclusive but let us be a people that step into that and say, no, both of these things are there together. That it is a process, a process of being conformed into the image of Jesus for the sake of others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for the ways in which he showed us and taught us and encouraged us to to take care of others, to break down the systems of injustice and oppression around us, no matter how large or how small, that he encouraged us to be a merciful people that showed love and compassion and grace to everyone around us. Father, may we be more and more conformed into the image and to the likeness of Jesus. And may we, may we make a difference in this world even when other people think we're crazy. Father, it's in your son's name that we pray all of these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's homily. If you're in Seattle, we'd love for you to join us on Sundays at noon at 1316 3rd Avenue West in Queen Anne. If you'd like to support our efforts, please visit unitedchurch.gives to partner with us financially. Be in peace and God bless.